Well, if you'd like to turn with me to Luke 17, 33. And we have quite a little chunk to cover. My goal is to give us a somewhat of a high view. Some say a 30,000 foot view. This past few uh, Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, June 23rd, was my wife's birthday. Not that I'm expecting to put it on the calendar, but we did something special. She asked, um, well, if we could watch some family videos. So the kids were, their kids are now, you know, in their 20s. were willing to, to sit down and put it on the big screen and watch themselves as little kids. <laughs> and one of the first shots of the video uh, that we watched was the kids at the beach. You know, they're, they're little. They were three and under at that time. And there's the video of us as parents holding their hands, and as the waves are coming in, we're pulling them up and then putting them back down and pulling them up and putting them back down. And I was noticing I kept posturing myself in a defensive position. I pointed out to the kids, I guess this is what parents do. I, you didn't want them running too far, but you were always trying to keep them from going too close to the ocean waves and to the beach side so that it would pull them back in. I mean, they're just little, right? And all of a sudden, as I'm watching myself doing that, just trying to protect them, watching what they're doing, a flood of memories, fear, just flooded over me. Those memories that I understand some of you are in right now, so I'm sorry to reawaken those, but of protection and always trying to keep them from hurting themselves. Uh, Emergency rooms to save one child's life. Uh, Rescuing a child seconds from drowning. If you hadn't looked at the right time, it wouldn't be here. And that's just running through my head. Catching a child falling 20 feet through the air. I will not explain to you I will explain to you. <laughs> I was 20. We were, she, was, she was young. I was excited. She's a toddler. And I came home from work and didn't know my own strength. I mean, and threw her up about 20 feet and realized I needed to catch her. And I still have nightmares of, am I going to be able to catch her trip? Watching as a child rips their hand from mom and dad's clasp, runs out to the street, cars flying by, and you know they're going to get hit. And for whatever reason, they take a detour to the right we couldn't see him because there was a car parked there that just disappeared. We, 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 we ran to the car to look to see you know, a child laying in the street or splattered or no, you know, for whatever reason, took a hard right. But those fears just remind me and we should remind us, even as, as parents and as they grow up, we're still praying for them as they're traveling, right? And we, we pray for our, our parents. We pray for friends. We're reminded that we are not in the promised land. The Bible describes this world that we live in as a a wilderness. A wilderness. Sometimes it feels like life is pressing in to threaten our very existence at, at every turn. It's interesting, if you go to Luke 17, Christ is drawing from an analogy of the flood, the worldwide flood, And drawing a comparison to his coming, that he will come much like that flood came, but he will come in in judgment. And he makes this statement, whoever, verse 33 of chapter 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Christ well understands that we are in the wilderness, uh, the wildness. 
And he instructs us not to try to build our own towers of heaven here on earth, but rather that we need to lose our life in order to gain it. And if we try to hold on to our life, we will lose it. It's interesting because there is what we call an inclusio, that is there's brackets. That's the first bracket. But you'll see this statement very similarly expressed in Luke 19 verse 10. And that's the ground we're going to try to cover this morning. Luke 19 verse 10. Now in two weeks I've been asked to preach again, so I may have to do part two, but we'll try to get through this. Verse 10 of chapter 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There's the answer to losing your life to gain it. He came to seek and save the lost. That's our bracket. That's the the breaded sandwich to the, the meat inside. And the meat inside are seven accounts that really Luke puts together to instruct us on what it means to lose your life in order to gain it. Now, a little pre-background, I think, would be important, and that's where it gets me into trouble to get us ready so that this has some power, so that we're, we step into the, the situation, the dire darkness of this text. But in Luke 17, verse 11, we'll start there. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and in verse 12, he entered a village. Now, at, at first glance, think of, maybe think of a village, and the birds are tweeting away, and life is good, but he, it says he is on the way to Jerusalem, and what comes up again and again is the way to Jerusalem is the way to the cross. He is going to face rejection, he will die, he will be judged on our behalf, and he will rise again from the dead. That is the way to Jerusalem. So for even Christ, while this may be a very pleasant stop at the moment, it is a dark shadow over our Lord. Now, if we step back a little more to just enrich our our hearts, to see the seriousness of this text, in Luke chapters 1 through 4, and I would go ahead and go to chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. This theme of wilderness, of living in a judged, cursed world, is prevalent. Luke chapter 1, let's start with Zechariah's prophecy with regard to John the Baptist. Where he says in verse 77 that John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And here's what Christ is going to bring. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So notice the picture here. The tender mercy of God, the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. And it is all described in a beautiful metaphor in verse 78 as the sunrise that shall visit us from on high. To those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That is the real spiritual picture. In a nice village, maybe the sun's shining, birds are singing. But the reality is, as God sees it, we are people sitting in darkness, in the shadow of death. It's the picture of someone sitting in a graveyard. You think of the demon-possessed man, bound and chained. That's the picture. And Christ is seen as the son of righteousness. If you jump up to chapter 3, verse 4, you see... 
John the Baptist, quoting from Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4, as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Don't read from the wilderness. Yeah, John the Baptist was in the wilderness and he came to them. The idea is that they are in the wilderness. Even though the people of God are in the promised land, they've returned back from Babylon, yet they brought the wilderness with them. It is still in their hearts. And so they are to make straight the paths of the Lord. And in verse 6, that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, there's a background to Luke. If you will, go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi. Because the same verbiage is used. I want you to see chapter 4, this theme of the son of righteousness. In chapter 4 of Malachi, verse 2. As you're turning there, the context in Malachi, they've already been kicked out of the land because of their idolatry. They've gone to Babylon. They have returned. And this promise is given to them. But in this return, it's, it's not the ultimate restoration. It's not the heaven on earth. There is covenant breaking. There is a wilderness that they have brought back with them. And so you see in, in Malachi 4.2, the same promise that Zechariah gave from his mouth as he looked at the son, John the Baptist, who would be in the spirit of Elijah, who would be the forerunner of the Lord. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It's the promise that Christ would come and that he would be like the sun rising in the darkness. You say, well, why does he need to rise on a people that have already returned back to their land? And for here, just drop back to uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? They had broken God's law. In chapter 2, back it up a little bit to verse 2. Now you've seen covenant. Now you can understand why there's a curse. Verse 2 of the same chapter. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. Those are covenantal curses. And I will curse your blessings. I'm going to turn even your blessings into a curse. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. That's the context. That's the wildness that Israel has returned to. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, here's God's answer. He's going to send two messengers. One, Jesus connects in Luke 7 to John the Baptist. We'll see that here in chapter 3, verse 1, without John the Baptist being noted. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. We've seen that in Luke 3. And the Lord whom you seek. Notice the Lord will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, he's the mediator of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? There's a twofold ministry that the rest of this text unfolds. One, he will come to purify his people. Think of the new covenant, of what Christ is going to do as the messenger of the covenant to fulfill the law of God for his people. And in so doing, give them a righteous status before God. But then the text says he's going to judge. Twofold ministry. 
to save and then to judge. Why? Because he is the messenger of the covenant. He is the executor of the covenant. God had brought Israel into a covenant relationship with him, given his law to reflect what is good and what is right and what is true. He said, if you obey me, that's your responsibility, blessing. Disobey me, curse. And they were under the curse. And the messenger of the covenant is coming. Now, one more stop. If you go back to Luke, that's our background. You can see why it's called uh, those sitting in the darkness, in the shadow of death, or under a curse. And the son of righteousness is coming, but he's the messenger of the covenant who has the right to execute judgment. And you should think of Revelation, right? Where Christ is breaking the seals. He's the messenger of the covenant, even over the earth. So uh, Luke chapter 3 Verse 22, we've talked about Israel being in the wilderness, even though they're in the land. They're in a dark valley. They're cursed. Here comes the messenger of the covenant. You say, well, what about us? Well, we're brought into that too. And it's implicitly brought about in Luke 3, verse 22, where the Holy Spirit descends on Christ at his baptism, at his inauguration for his covenantal ministry, if you will, as the messenger of the covenant. And, and God says from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So there's his sonship. Now if you look at verse 38, you're going to see the son of Adam, the son of God. Now we have two sons. One is Christ, and the Father says, opens the heavens, this is my son, I'm fully pleased with him. And then we're given the history, some genealogy, that is grounded in Adam as a son of God. And then you find Christ, and what does he do in chapter 4, verse 1 and following? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted. He begins his mission in the wilderness, in a cursed world. What are we trying to get at? As we look at the parallels of the Adams, not only we see Israel as a nation cursed under judgment, but we're to be reminded that we too were in Adam as our representative, that he was in a garden like Israel was in the promised land, and he broke covenant, and he was cast out east into the wilderness. Just like Israel was cast out east to Babylon and Assyria, they're brought back, but the wilderness is still in their hearts. So we too, as even as Gentiles are brought into this sin-cursed wildness. And we're looking for the son of righteousness who will come. Now you go back to Luke 17. You can see this twofold ministry of Jesus. As we saw in Malachi 3, he would come to set apart his people through redemption, but he would also come to judge. And that's what Christ underlines as we move into our actual uh, text. So Luke 17, verse 24 and 25, here's the twofold ministry of this messenger of the covenant. He says in verse 24, 17, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The messenger of the covenant has come. The seals are ready to be broken, the curse to be poured out from heaven. He's, he's the mediator of the covenant. He has the right to do so. But he willingly steps down and says, first, I must suffer. I must set apart a people. And then will come the day of judgment. At that moment, at that cross, the final day of judgment was poured out on the Son in order that we who believe in Jesus might escape. 
when the cosmological judgment comes at the day of the Lord. So as we move into our text, hopefully you're, you're, we're in the wilderness. Maybe a graveyard speaks to you, the shadow of death. Judgment is coming. We're under a curse. And we're looking for the son of righteousness. And so as Jesus begins to unfold the day of the Lord to his disciples, it's pertinent that they ask this question in chapter 17, verse 5. Or maybe they command it. Maybe they demand it. But it's, a, it's an exhortation and a plea. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's the request. Increase our faith. So Luke begins to weave a sevenfold instruction of Jesus regarding how to lose your life to gain life in Christ. And so for that, let's turn to chapter 18, verse 1. We'll look at the first instruction. And it's this. Understand that God will give justice. (laughs) You see, we don't think we need a savior if we don't understand there's a need for justice and that our hearts cry out for justice. And so Christ tells a parable actually to encourage believers because remember the disciples have asked for their faith to be increased. And so he begins with a corrupt judge. He told them a parable, verse 1, to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He describes a judge, in verse 2, who did not fear God nor respected man. And there's a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How do we prepare for his final day of judgment? Faith in Christ. Now the text moves from a lesser to a greater, right? A widow seeking justice, but comes to a corrupt judge who's in it for himself. But because he's berated, he goes ahead and gives in. He's got the, the law behind him, so he's able to execute it on her behalf, as it should have been done anyway, but he's corrupt. The, the contrast is that if a man who perverts justice acts justly because he's bothered, how much more so the God who is justice in his own character. He is good. He is just. He is right. He is truth. And so we're meant to be confronted with justice. Now I hope in your heart that you're, as you think through your week, you are thinking about your pleas for justice. The moment that you are upset at someone for taking an advantage, you are applying God's law. As Romans 2 says, God's law is written on our hearts. Romans 2 says that we We condemn others, and in so doing, we turn around and judge ourselves because we practice the same things. So we have his law written on our hearts. We're we're constantly judging the things around us. In fact, we would say that the order in society depends upon justice and rules, right? Driving on the road, we appreciate some order, some speed limits for some of us, especially when we see the consequences. We have police officers that apply law. Tests for school were graded. 
board games, card games, yard games, sports. You can't get away with watching baseball and seeing an umpire. And we often see a typical reaction when someone doesn't believe the call is right, rejecting that authority. Competition, dancing, and singing. For there to be social order, there has to be law, rules, and judges. But again, it's a a reminder that it is still not a pure justice because we live in the wildness. We live in the wilderness. Man perverts it. But yet it is a glimmer. It is a glimmer as we cry out for justice that God is the God of justice. And what does he say in verse 7? He will give, he will not, will not God give justice to his elect? In verse 8, who's the executor of this justice, the messenger of the covenant? He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Christ is the Son of Man. A statement of God's representative to man. He's the second Adam who provides both judgment and he provides salvation. He's the executor of this judgment. It's interesting in Paul, in Romans 1 through 3, that he begins chapter 2 with confronting our application of law in order to indict us. And as Jesus said, we love to pull the speck out of someone's eye, but we have a log in our own eye. It's when we have to deal with justice and right, equity, fairness, that we're confronted with the reality that it is God who stands behind that justice. So you ask, how do I lose my life in order to gain it? Well, first you need to understand God is just. And even as you look at life, you see the perversion of justice. It moves you upward to crowd for true justice. The scriptures point you to the God of justice. But that should cause us to go, well, wait a minute then. Am I prepared to meet this judge? And now we're ready for number two. Faith that loses life to gain life in Christ understands that God will be merciful to confessed sinners, but just with the self-righteous. And we see that in the second parable, in the Pharisee and the tax collector in verse 9. Here he says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So there's a response to justice, that they were righteous. They were just, they were good. They met the standard of the law and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And now we have an echo of our Statement, losing life to gain it, but in exaltation humility terms. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So a non-faith response would be to trust in oneself. Jesus is giving us an illustration of this. The Pharisee, a religious leader, what is his posture? He is standing by himself, evoking the character of self-reliance. He begins to compare to other people. I am not like other men, he says. That's his self-standard. 
rather than looking to God as the standard of justice, he compares to the behavior of others so that he can justify himself. And he he depends on his self-works. We see this in verse 12. I fast twice a week. There's his sacrifice. And I give tithes of all that I get. There's his giving. His sacrifice and his giving. He's paid penance. And he's established his own righteousness. You might call that the curse and the blessing of the law. He's saying, "I've, I've done it myself. But notice the tax collector who has betrayed his national family by being a mediator for Rome, extorting Israel to collect taxes for Rome and padding his pockets. We wouldn't expect this man to be received by God. But in verse 13, the tax collector, notice his posture. He stands far off. Now that statement, far off, is used throughout Isaiah, particularly of those who are Gentiles, those who are cast out. So here you have this tax collector who views himself as one who is far off, an outcast. He admits he is in the wilderness, being far off from God, separated from God. But he, unlike the Pharisee, he judges himself by comparing with God. He separates himself before God. He humbles himself. He would not lift up his eyes to heaven. And he confessed his need for God's salvation. We love the statement. I'm sure you've, you've been with us long enough to, to know that that word mercy in verse 13, be merciful to me. It's halasmas, to propitiate, to satisfy God's wrath against me. It's used in Hebrews 2.17 that our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, his law, to make atonement, there's our word, or propitiate, or to be merciful for the sins of the people. Now notice, what this tax collector does is he looks at God and sees his justice, his righteousness. And he pleads that God would provide a sacrifice a propitiation, a satisfaction for his wrath. As the tax collector understands, he has violated God's law. Now look at this echoing, beautiful pronouncement because this is where our confidence is at in Jesus. A lot of people want to turn us to fruit and there's a place for looking at fruit in our life. But as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the believer's confidence is rooted in the very pronouncement of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house. How normal, nothing external. And there are no balloons, no, you know, things going off, no music, no party. He just goes down to his house. That's the way salvation is. It's a status change. He goes down to his house. What a normal place, justified declared right with God rather than the other. Why? Because he humbled himself, acknowledging his sinfulness and his need for atonement, for a sacrifice to pay for his sins. How do we lose our life to gain life in Christ or humble ourselves to be exalted? Well, first we need to grapple with God's justice. We have to realize we're going to face that. And so then we understand that God will be merciful to confessing sinners and he will be just with the self-righteous. In this case, the self-righteous went away unjustified, guilty before God. Thirdly, 
Understand that God will be merciful. He will be merciful to sinners with childlike faith. Remember, Christ asked, will he find faith on the earth? And so we ask, well, what kind of faith? And in Luke 18, verse 15, don't you love this? When you see these brackets like this, you're like, well, each of these accounts are helping us answer this question. They're not just isolated little stories. Wow. Verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to him. Babies. Maybe that'll help you with the concept of child here. That he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such, to such like these, belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. What kind of faith? A faith such like or like a child, like an infant? It's a faith if you read this context here, because you can't just read 15 through 17 and not use 9 through 14 to inform you. It's the childlike faith that comes empty-handed like the tax collector. He comes helpless to God. He comes needy before God. He comes dependent upon God. And what flooded my mind as I was working through this was what it means to be born again. John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God using birth terms like an infant. He cannot even enter the kingdom of God, John 3, 5. John 1, 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this infant-like faith isn't by our own will, isn't by bloodline, it's not of the flesh, it's not of the will of man, it is of God. We come empty, needy before God. Faith like an infant is like the man far off who came to God like a spiritual infant with nothing to offer God but his spiritual need. I mean, think about infants. They need food for hunger for survival, blankets for nakedness, strength for weakness, protection for threat and death. It has to be positive protection. You just let an infant sit, death will come quickly. Needs care for helplessness, needs love for life. You see, when we look at the cross, when we look at the cross, we see our hatred for God as he bore our sins. We see our blindness as man rejected him as the beautiful savior that he is. We see our rebellion that he hung there to pay for our rebellious acts against God and our rebellious thoughts. We see our rejection. But at the cross, we realize that I need his righteousness to protect me, his sovereignty to deliver me, his glory to exalt me, his beauty to clothe me, his grace to reconcile me, his eternity to, to secure me, his pleasure to love me. And as we begin to meditate on the cross, like infant, spiritual infants, helpless before God, we realize that for when God crushed Jesus with hell, it was so that he might give us heaven. When God wrapped Christ in darkness, it was so that he might wrap you and I in the garments of his salvation. When God separated from Christ in the horror of the wildness of the cross, 
It was so that in his abandonment, we might be encouraged and loved and embraced. When God spoke against Christ as the cursed one at the cross, judging him with the curses of the covenant on our behalf, it was to speak love and assurance. It was to say you are declared right with God. You are forgiven. When God deprived Christ on that cursed cross of comfort, protection, and provision, as Psalm 16 reminds us, it was to comfort your soul, to protect your life, and to provide his eternal salvation. And that is the perspective of an infant-like child who looks to Christ. So we've seen to lose your life, to gain it. You need to understand God's justice. You need to understand God gives mercy to confessed sinners. You need to understand that God's mercy comes to infant-like faith. Fourthly, Understand that God will treat self-righteousness with the law of justice. Self-righteousness with the law of justice. And now we're introduced to the rich ruler. It's such a strange passage. God, uh, Jesus actually says, and he's God, so I can say both. He actually tells him to obey the law. Because what is a self-righteous person wanting to do? He confronts him with the demands of the law. So verse 18. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So I'm going to start making comments as we move through the length of this text. First, Christ points to God as the, as the, as goodness itself. He points to God's being as good. Some have asked, why doesn't Jesus take the opportunity to talk about his deity here? Because this man is not ready to understand Christ and the need for Christ. What he needs to do is go back to see God's justice, that God is good. Reminds me of Psalm 34, 8, taste and see the Lord is good. Psalm 86, 5, you Lord are good. Psalm 100, verse 5, uh, for the Lord is good. That's Psalm 100, verse 5. Psalm 107, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Some of the old creeds and confessions state that God is one in essence, that he is not made of parts subject to change by addition or subtraction. Some theologians have said, all that is in God is God. That is, he's not made of parts. In other words, God's being is good. He is the measure of all goodness. As Psalm 16.1 says, I have no good apart from you. That is, God is my good. Throw me in the wildness, but if I have God, I have good. He is my good. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to point him upward to the God who is the very definition, the very essence of good in himself. But then he confronts him with the law. He needs a healthy dose of God's goodness, that God is good. But he also needs to see God's good law to bring him low, to show him the demands of the law. And so in verse 20, he exposes his sin. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. In verse 21, he said, all these I have kept from my youth. He hadn't read Matthew 5, apparently, that it's even in the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. You even grumble. Are you kidding me? You're telling me that when your parents told you to do something, you didn't even go, "Mm, inside? No, not at all. 
Well, that's what I've kept him from my youth. He's keeping it very external. In verse 22, Jesus goes after the, his heart. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The man asks, what good thing must I do? He at least understands the law of God that it does require perfect, perpetual obedience. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. As Leviticus says, do this and you will live. Leviticus 18. He understands that's the requirement of the law. That was laid before Adam. That was laid before Israel. But Christ understood there is an issue. There is not wholehearted love for God or for neighbor. Sell everything. There it deals with the heart before God. Give to the poor. That deals with your neighbor. In verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He fell into despair. There are two responses to God's law if you don't come through Christ. One is the Pharisee. We will justify ourselves by comparing ourselves with the deeds of others to make ourselves feel better. We justify ourselves. God declares us guilty. And the second response is to come underneath the law of God, see its demands, and then despair and walk away. Two responses, and neither reflect this living infant faith that loses to gain life in Christ. So Christ exposed his sin. Now we see a question of possibility. And so as we move on in the text, in verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they said, who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. To lose your life, to gain it, it is impossible. We hold on to our doings and our deeds and our accomplishments and our riches. It is an act of God to humble us like the tax collector to see our true need for Christ. Now what's interesting is an interesting twist And it's easy for do-gooders, self-justifiers, to entrap themselves. And I've seen many theologians and pastors do that with a text like this. In 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So in this time, it's the present reality of eternal life which I'm going to read into there. Believers being united with Christ, gain his life, were regenerated, saved. And in the age to come, glorification, I would add, eternal life. But here's the kicker. Peter is asking about a reward. And Christ confirms to Peter that he's left father and mother and brother and parents and children. He will receive many more times. And so the do-gooder, self-justifier mindset says, see, if I follow him, if I give up everything, then I will gain eternal life. And they fall into the trap of the Pharisee and they fall in the trap of the rich ruler. Remember, Peter is asked, increase our faith. Now, certainly this faith needs to grow as they're confronted with the unfolding 
uh, ministry of the gospel. They're trying to understand what his suffering entails. We're going to see that in a moment. But he is in the family, not out to the family, trying to follow Jesus to get into the family. That is the difference. Think about it. If I told neighborhood kids, you know, you can pick up the sticks in my yard. That's a great thing. Do that. And then you can play with my kids. That doesn't qualify them to get into my family. I didn't say I'm going to adopt you based upon your deeds. How about my children? I give them rewards of encouragement. Ask them to do chores. Well, that was when they were little. Not anymore. <laughs> you could ask me to do chores. <laughs> in fact, I ask him, hey, can, you help? can you fix my car? <laughs> so it changes as you get older. But in the family, you give motivating rewards. $2 for mowing the lawn. That doesn't get them into the family. They're already in the family. They've already been accepted. They bear my name. So these are gifts and rewards. And they're, they're gracious because they've already been qualified. That's the issue. Some will say, well, based on obedience, then God will give a final justification and open heaven. No, heaven's already opened. You're already declared right with God in Christ. These are encouragements to believers in the family. But be on guard. There are Pharisees and rich young rulers who will take this text and turn it back into a means of doing good to get into the family. So interesting how it's just right there to confront our hearts. And just in case, it looks like Luke needs to bring us to the cross. So in verse 31 through 34, we find our fifth. Understand that our law-breaking is the reason the judge went to the cross, the Son of Man, the messenger of the covenant, went to the cross. And so here Luke throws in this dark shadow of the cross. And taking the twelve, he said to them, Jesus, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Christ's answer is to go to the cross. That's where our law-breaking must meet God with the judge of the universe paying our debt. Now, the nuances of this is hidden from them, and so Luke adds a fifth or sixth. Understand that Christ opens spiritual blind eyes to see their need, and so he throws in the blind beggar. In verse 35, Christ opens our eyes to see our spiritual need. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith. The kind of faith that's been described through this chapter has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now notice the blind man recognizes he's the son of David, that all of God's promises, messianic promises and redemption funnel through the son of David. He's the one. He's the one qualified to have mercy on me. He recognizes in verse 41 that he's the divine Lord. Lord, let me recover my sight. 
turn my blindness into sight. I want you to see the hostility and the context. They're passing through Jericho. This is no accident. He's on his way to Jerusalem. I want you to think of the people of Israel as Joshua is leading them across the Jordan River and the mercy seat, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant first goes into the water. It's opened up. And then the people are commanded by the, the commander of the Lord of hosts to march around the city. They're to do nothing but to praise and to blow their trumpets. The walls come tumbling down. They're passing through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. Christ is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. It's no accident that we're given the Jericho event. It's not walls and the river that's against them. It's, well, his blindness, his sin. It's also the crowd that are hostile to him. They note that Jesus of Nazareth, so they look at him according to the flesh. The, the blind man sees him as the son of David, God's promises. And in one command, he's given sight. And notice just as the people of Israel rejoiced when the walls fell, because they added nothing to God. They did nothing for God. God did it on their behalf. It is the victory of the Lord. The people seeing this, they too respond in praise to God. This is the ultimate Joshua moving to Jerusalem to first pay for our sins in order to bring his coming kingdom. Lastly, we see Zechariah. And we turn to chapter 19. Understand Christ saves the lost. He saves the lost. Now, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zachariah, or Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Like the tax collector we saw earlier, this was chief, and he was rich. And notice, they've entered Jericho. What happens with Jericho when the walls come down? God gives a, a covenant to the people that the, the spoils were to belong to the Lord. And a man named Achan took that for himself and hid it to enrich himself. He fell under the curse of the covenant and was judged by God. Here now we've entered Jericho. It is a rich man, but the opposite happens. He is already under a curse in the wildness. He's already extorted his people. And Jesus comes, and notice Zacchaeus, he's small of stature, verse 4, you know the story. Many of us know the song. He's a wee little man. He climbs up into a sycamore tree to see him, but notice it's Christ commanding. It's Christ acting. His sovereignty is on, on display. In verse 5, Jesus came to the place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. They're thinking like the Pharisee, like the rich and ruler. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Notice Christ is the one commanding. It's Christ who's going to enter his home. Now, what's interesting in verse 8 is that Zacchaeus promises to give half of his goods to the poor, and if he's stolen from anyone, he's going to restore it fourfold. And the question you should be asking if you're reading the context is why in the world did Jesus demand complete all, giving everything of the rich and ruler? Because one's in the family and one's out of the family. To the one out of the family trying to get in the family by works, it's perfect perpetual obedience 
everything. That's the demand of the law, and you fail it. And you need a savior. But he went away in despair. And Zacchaeus, the Lord said, in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. He's a son of Abraham. That's a statement of having faith in the promises of God in Christ. You'll see that in Galatians and Romans 4, verse 11. And Christ says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Christ is saying, salvation's come here. He's a child of Abraham. He's trusted in me. And I have come to seek and save the lost. So now look back at verse 8. What is Zacchaeus' response? He's not trying to give in order to get in. He's already been saved as a sinner, empty-handed. And it's out of love and thanksgiving. And is that not our lives then? We who are in Christ, in the family, we're freed. Free to serve, not to gain God's acceptance. Free to worship as you're able. You have a conscience over a certain thing, you're free to give fourfold away if you wish, or half, or to hold it for the needs of your family. Why? Because you are declared right in Christ. Well, the Son of Righteousness has come into the wilderness, and He has a name. His name is Jesus. How do you lose your life in order to gain it? Abandon yourself. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Look at God's justice and his goodness. Look at his law and its high demands. And by faith, empty-handed, ask, seek, knock. He will give in Christ. He will provide the righteous you need, eternal life, an adopted family, home in heaven, for his glory and our good and his praise. Lord, we close our time by transitioning into the celebration of the Lord's Supper, in which we get to remember and to participate together in reminders of Christ's beautiful sacrifice for us. And Lord, remind us, rekindle our hearts with the, your mercy that you, so high and exalted, as Scripture says, you are the most high, would come so low to bear our sin and guilt, to open up a fountain of life, of righteousness, hope for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.